Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, test scores don't matter, but zip codes do. This as the Supreme Court declines to hear a race-related admissions case. Some say an elite school's policy discriminates against Asian-American students. What happened to the school's ranking after the policy's adoption? Melina Weiskup reports. Is Governor Gavin Newsom plan B for Democrats? What President Biden says as he heads to California and how former President Trump's responding to Nikki Haley's refusal to quit. Iris Tao from the White House. Two people have been charged in the deadly shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. New details from the Jackson County prosecutor. A disturbing video shows an Israeli mother and her two children who were taken hostage on October 7th. And the United Nations votes on a proposed ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. How did the U.S. vote? Jason Perry reports. The mother of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny today pleading for the return of her son's body. And the White House plans to announce new sanctions targeting Russia. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. A Supreme Court decision today could shift the paradigm for students across the nation. Academic performance is no longer the main factor in determining who can attend one of the nation's most prestigious public schools, Virginia's Thomas Jefferson High School. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the story. Just months after the Supreme Court overhauled race-based admissions at Harvard University, it's now allowing a race-related policy at Virginia-based Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, one of the nation's highest-ranked public schools. The high court declined to rule on a newly enacted holistic admissions policy, which scraps who has the highest test scores and instead favors applicants who are either economically disadvantaged or who are learning English as a second language, a policy that some parents have said discriminates against Asian Americans. This is not only a discrimination against Asian Americans. They endanger our nation's technology leadership in the world by you know, worsening our shortage in STEM education. Since the policy was enacted in 2020, the elite science and tech school dropped in its ranking from number one to number five. The demographics changed too, the Asian population dropping from 73% to 54%, the number of black students increasing from one to 7%, and Hispanics rising from 3% to 11%. That tries to adjust for low income zip codes, low income neighborhoods that claims it's racially, facially neutral, but actually is discriminatory. It seems to stray a little bit from the ruling or at least significantly weaken the ruling in the Students for Fair Admissions case. The performance of the black Hispanic is not as good as other racial group. They should address that, address the root cause. Two justices predicted ripple effects from leaving the policy in place. In their dissent opinion, Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas wrote, TJ's model itself has been trumpeted to potential replicators as a blueprint for evading the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. 
And the Supreme Court today rejecting appeals from seven Trump-allied attorneys, including Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell. The group is facing legal sanctions in the state of Michigan for filing lawsuits that challenge the results of the 2020 presidential election. The sanctions were imposed by a U.S. District Court in 2021. Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood filed separate appeals asking the justices to review the case. They argued, among other things, that sanctions would make it less likely for lawyers to take unpopular cases to court. But the Supreme Court turned down their requests without comment. The lawyers were ordered to pay the defendant's attorney's fees and take legal training classes. The court also referred the lawyers to their own state bar associations for further investigation. President Biden reaching into the pockets of some of his wealthiest donors as his ability to run continues to raise questions. And former President Trump touting a fast approaching GOP victory despite Nikki Haley refusing to drop out. Entity's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more. Despite polling showing President Biden with an underwater approval rating, his ability to raise money has been actually quite good. On Tuesday, his campaign touted having raised over $42 million in January alone, and that's adding to his fundraising edge over Trump. And this week, Biden's holding more fundraisers in some of the wealthiest parts of the country, namely in Silicon Valley and Hollywood. But as he was heading out to California on Tuesday, he was again faced with a question about his age and his ability to keep keep running as president. Watch. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Well, I'm looking for I'm looking at you. We're looking at you. Well, we're not exactly sure what that means, but Governor Gavin Newsom on Tuesday got a very similar question. Here's how he responded. Watch. If for whatever reason Biden won't be available for pre presidency, will you be interested to uh, join the ticket? No, no. It's uh, I, President Biden's coming out to California tonight. He'll be in the Bay Area tomorrow, uh, and uh, I hope to be invited uh, to his inaugurals for his second term as president of the United States. Right. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley's questioning the age of both Biden and Trump while vowing to stay in the race. That's why I refuse to quit. South Carolina will vote on Saturday, but on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. And Trump's campaign on Tuesday called Nikki Haley a wailing loser, adding that Trump will secure the GOP nomination in just a few weeks. And President Biden, meanwhile, said on Tuesday that he doesn't care if he's going to face off with Trump or Haley this November. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. Parenting YouTuber Ruby Frankie sentenced today to up to 60 years in a Utah prison. That's after pleading guilty to four counts of aggravated child abuse. She'll serve four consecutive prison terms of one to 15 years. Frankie's former business partner Jody Hildebrand received the same sentence. The two were arrested last summer over the abuse of two of Frankie's children aged 12 and 9. Frankie is the creator of a once popular YouTube channel called Eight Passengers, which gave parenting advice. Over in Missouri, two adults have been charged in connection with a deadly shooting at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade. 18-year-old Dominic Miller and 22-year-old Lindell Mays both face second-degree murder and other firearm-related charges. Here's the Jackson County prosecutor speaking earlier today. From the evidence, it appears that Defendant Mays, that's the first person I, I read off charges on, Defendant Mays was in a verbal argument with another individual. 
Mays pulled his handgun first. Almost immediately, almost immediately, others pulled their firearms. The new charges come after two teenagers were detained last week for resisting arrest and the use of firearms. Officials say there could be more charges as the invest investigation continues. The February 14th shooting resulted in one death and 22 injuries. Both defendants are being held on a $1 million bond. As Israeli troops make their way through the Gaza Strip, they find a video of a family that was taken hostage, now released to the public. And at the United Nations, the U.S. blocked an Arab-backed draft resolution for a ceasefire that fails to ensure the hostages' release. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. During recent operations in the southern Gaza Strip, Israeli soldiers found security footage of a mother and her two children who were taken as hostages. Armed terrorists covered them with a blanket as they led the Israeli family down this dirt road in Khan Yunus. The IDF spokesperson said the family members of the hostages gave permission to release the video to the public. Our forces obtained new footage of Shiri Bibas with her children, four-year-old Ariel and nine-month-old Kfir, from the day where they were kidnapped into Gaza on October 7th. The family was then put in a car and driven to an unknown location. The children's father was kidnapped separately after he tried to defend his family from the terrorists on that fateful day. On Tuesday, their relatives spoke after the video's release. It was very, very sad that Hamas took so small kid and he, he using him like a prisoner or something like that. We desperately call for an all decision makers in Israel and worldwide to be involved in negotiations and bring them on immediately. And the United States on Tuesday raised concerns when they vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution for a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. The Algeria drafted resolution did not call for Hamas to release the hostages. Part of the ceasefire that we're working on requires that they do exactly that because without the hostage releases, we know that the fighting is going to continue. Also on Tuesday, the UN World Food Program said it had paused food deliveries to northern Gaza for safety reasons. There is no milk, no food, no drink like normal people. I lost 25 kilos in one month only. We can't go on with this life. And across Israel's northern border, the IDF released a video striking several alleged Hezbollah targets in Lebanon on Monday. One of the impacted areas was still burning the next day. The owner of this warehouse that was hit shared his thoughts. This hit came with the claim that it was a weapons warehouse. This is a company registered for 11 years that works with electricity generators and their maintenance. The claim that this has weapons is a lie. The day before this strike, the IDF reported hitting two Hezbollah weapon storage facilities in that same area in response to a drone that was launched towards northern Israel. Jason Perry, NTD News. The mother of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny appealing to President Vladimir Putin today to hand over her son's body. This comes after authorities denied her access to a morgue where Navalny was believed to be held. 
I am turning to you, Vladimir Putin. The solution to the issue depends only on you. Let me finally see my son. I require that Alexei's body be immediately given so that I can bury him humanely. Navalny died last Friday while serving a decades-long prison sentence. His widow accused Russian authorities of intentionally hiding his body to disguise the real cause of death. And here in the U.S., officials are vowing repercussions. The White House today said it's looking to announce sanctions targeting Russia this Friday. That's over Navalny's death and the war in Ukraine. The Biden administration is holding Putin responsible for Navalny's death and has pressed the Kremlin for complete transparency. Meanwhile, in Spain, authorities said they have found the body of a man riddled with bullets. It is believed to be the remains of Maxim Kuzminov, a Russian pilot charged with treason for defecting to Ukraine. Kyiv has confirmed Kuzminov's death, but it's still unclear if the remains in Spain belong to him. The Moscow City Court has rejected U.S. journalist Evan Gershkovich's appeal against extended detention. He'll remain in custody until March 30th. The court ruled today upholding the lower court's decision to extend his detention. Gershkovich was arrested in March 2023 while on a reporting trip. Russia's main security service accused him of trying to obtain state secrets. Gershkovich, his employer, The Wall Street Journal, and the U.S. strenuously deny the charge. If convicted, he faces up to 20 years in prison. Coming up, a civil trial scrutinizing America's largest and most powerful gun rights group. Today, a New York jury deliberating whether certain NRA officials get to keep their jobs. Our legal correspondent brings us the highlights. A controversial new bridge connecting Panama and Colombia could allow more migrants to reach North America. Our guest explains the situation on the ground. And flash flood and evacuation warnings in Southern California. We'll take a look at current impacts and rain forecasts for the region when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A New York jury resumes deliberations today in the corruption trial against the National Rifle Association, or NRA, its former CEO and other officials. We turn now to our legal correspondent Arlene Richards for more on the trial. Arlene, what are these officials being accused of? So the former leader, Wayne LaPierre La is his name, and uh, some of the other officials are being accused of going on lavish vacations and getting other perks using donor money. Now, Wayne LaPierre actually uh, retired or, or stepped down from his position just before the trial began. Uh, Attorney General Letitia James has started her investigation back in 2019, and then she filed this case in 2020. She's asking for sweeping financial penalties. She wants these other, uh, these other defendants, the officials, removed from their positions, and she wants them to never, ever work for a nonprofit again in, in the city of New York. So um, another thing that's interesting in this is that she campaigned on Get the NRA, and this came out in the trial, but the judge said... It doesn't matter because her personal bias has no impact over the actual facts in the case. Hmm. Now, in terms of the NRA money that was allegedly used, can you give us some examples that came up in the trial? So in addition to the lavish vacations, they talk about exclusive business trips, uh, whining and dining executives from other companies and corporations that they were meeting with. Uh, also, they benefited from luxury items like uh, 
yachts and private jets and the uh, leader here, Mr. LaPierre, was buying expensive designer suits and all of this was paid for allegedly with donor money. Hmm. And what are some of the key points argued by both sides in the jury? So the state argued that this actually destroyed the, uh, this, the trust from the NRA and the and the members of the NRA. They say the longtime uh, finance chief who was overseeing this money actually was complicit in this because he didn't, uh, you know, call up here on the carpet for the spending that he was doing. And actually, he also told his subordinates not to investigate some of the questionable spending that was going on. And because of this, uh, millions and millions of dollars were spent by LaPierre. Now, Wayne LaPierre doesn't deny that he spent this money and he purchased these things, but he says it was necessary in order to further the mission of the NRA. He says, I needed the designer suits because I was meeting with people that were on that caliber and I needed to be on par with these executives. He said, I needed the private jet because there were death threats against me and so I needed the extra security. He says that there was no ill intent here and the law provides for mistakes being made. But Letitia James says, you did this knowingly and intentionally and there were no mistakes made here. So the jury has a lot to consider in this case and they're still deliberating it. They didn't come up with a decision today and we'll just have to see what they decide. A lot to unpack there. Arlene Richards, thank you so much. Thank you. On Capitol Hill, Republican senators today pressed for a full impeachment trial of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Entity's Luis Martinez has the details. Senator Rick Scott from Florida sent a letter to Vice President Kamala Harris this Tuesday encouraging her to fulfill her constitutional duty and serve over as presiding officer during the upcoming proceedings of the impeachment of Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. In the letter, Scott said Harris should be keenly interested in whether a high-ranking member of her administration is part of the root causes of the border crisis. He noted the vice president was appointed border czar by President Biden in 2021. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has already announced that the Senate's pro-temporary president, Senator Patty Murray, will preside over the trial. In a separate letter, Republican Senators Mike Lee, Ted Cruz urged Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to join them in ensuring the Senate Democrats allow for a full trial. They warned the Democrats could try to dismiss the impeachment charges something the Senate has never done before. The Senate returns from a recess on the 26th of February. The Republican-appointed impeachment managers will then deliver the two articles of impeachment against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Reporting from the U.S. Senate, Luis Eduardo Martinez, NTD News. In some breaking news in Texas, authorities say the body of Audrey Cunningham, an 11-year-old girl who disappeared while on her way to school, has been found. But at this time, I sadly announced that Audrey's body was located at the Trinity River on the U.S. Highway 59. As a result of today's developments, I will discontinue the Amber Alert for Audrey. And I, I want to thank DPS, Department of Public Safety, for all their help. Cunningham's body has been taken to the medical examiner's office and officials are waiting for information on the cause of death. 
The girl vanished after she left to catch the school bus Thursday morning in the town of Livingston, about 70 miles northeast of Houston, but she never made it to the bus stop. The Polk County District Attorney said her office is preparing an arrest warrant for 42-year-old Don Stephen McDougall, a family friend, and will charge him with capital murder. Authorities said McDougall lives in a trailer on the Cunningham family's property and sometimes took Audrey to the bus stop. He's currently in custody for unrelated aggravated assault charges. He's been identified as the main person of interest in Audrey's disappearance. The southern border has been bracing for millions of legal immigrants from around the world. Mexican authorities say there has been a huge increase in migrants from countries in Africa and Venezuela in 2023. Now, a controversial new bridge in the Darien Gap in Panama could allow even more people to cross into the U.S. Joining us now is Epic Times reporter Darlene Sanchez, who's on the ground at the site of the bridge. Darlene Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Thank you for having me, Tiffany. Now, you're in Panama at the site of a bridge that's caused a lot of controversy. What is the significance of that bridge, the location, and why is it controversial? Well, I'm here at the construction site of the bridge, and the reason it's so controversial is they are cutting a pathway through uh, the Darien Gap area, and uh, it's going to go on, it's on the Panama side, it's going towards the Columbia side, and it's crossing two major barriers, uh, which are two rivers, right? And one is called the uh, Chukanake River, and the other one is the Tweedo River. And those are the really the last holdouts to have a highway connecting Panama to Colombia. There's one other um, big mountain that they're going to have to, you know, go through, but that's it. And then you will have, you can have a highway all the way from, Highway 1 runs from South America all the way up through Central America into North America and all the way to Alaska. So it's going to be a free-for-all. And what did you find out about it or any info about who's behind this bridge and what it could be used for? Well, it's a $42 million bridge and it's going about 25 miles into the jungle, which would leave another 35 miles to connect it to Columbia. And we are told this is for the farmers uh, in the jungle so they can move their produce, which they get, you know, pennies on the dollar. Um, over here and they can cut out the middleman and make a little more money. But of course the question is why would you spend 42 million dollars for something that would really have very little benefit I guess to your economy. That's one of the big questions. The Panama, uh, the Panamanian government is actually the ones funding the bridge is what we're told by the workers here on site that we talked to. And you did mention the Darien Gap earlier, which is quite notorious. You also went there. How dangerous is it? What did you see and find out there? This is just like a sea of humanity. They, it's just, you can look on, you know, for, you know, 100 yards and see people. There's, it's like a little village has sprung up. You know, there's commerce there. You can go, there's Wi-Fi signs everywhere. You pay them a little bit of money and they'll connect you up with their Wi-Fi. Right, and this is with the Embora Indians. Um, they are the native people that live in the Darien area, in the Darien Gap. So this is part of their economy now, is catering to um, all the migrants coming up through Central and South America. 
And speaking of the migrants, there are several migrant camps, including a Chinese one. What did you find when you went to those? Yeah, this was a, uh, a camp, um, Camp Vicente is what they call it. This camp, we talked to um, a couple of uh, Chinese uh, migrants there and asked them why they were, you know, why take this risk? Why go this route? Why not fly into the U.S. on a visa? You know, it seems a lot easier, right? And they're like, well, they've shut down the visas. Um, you know, they only allow so many over, and they felt like they needed to come now. They really didn't talk much about Joe Biden. Uh, they may not realize all the politics of the situation, but they are saying they need to go now. They're saying they want religious freedom. In the case of one lady we spoke to who was coming from China, another said he wanted a better life for his family. But there's been talk here, too. Uh, there's going to be, you know, with this huge influx of Chinese nationals coming over, we were told by the Embraer um, Indians that most of these were uh, military-aged males. And they see them, they're the, the experts. So, you know, we're not relying on NGOs, we're not relying on the government to tell us what's happening. These folks know, and that's what they said to us. Most of them, almost all of them are military-aged men around 25. And given all that you are seeing down there, how does this tie into the border crisis that we're seeing here in the States? Exactly. Well, this has become basically a cottage industry. There's so much money flying from the U.S. to the U.N. and to these not nonprofits, NGOs. And all this money is being pumped into basically uh, it's a migration industry. That's what it is down here. You know, like I said, there's stores have popped up catering to, um, you know, the migrants. Uh, you know, they have to pay $60 to catch a bus uh, to go, you know, further north. So, and they're not allowed to walk in some of the camps. There's also help, though, at these areas from the NGOs. You know, there's maps they, they put out, show them how to get there. Um, they have numbers that they can call, you know, if they need help. Uh, they get, you know, water, humanitarian aid. Without that kind of help, most of these people would not be doing this because they told us it was pure help. Wow, Darlene Sanchez, thank you so much for your time. Heavy rain continues to pummel Southern California, prompting flood alerts and evacuations. NTD's Christina Corona has more with a weather update. Another substantial storm has drenched many regions of Los Angeles, with the heaviest downpours targeting the mountain and coastal areas, causing major flooding and evacuations. Weather forecasts indicate rainfall totals of two to five inches are expected across the coasts and valleys Tuesday and four to eight inches across south and southwest facing mountain slopes and foothills. A flash flood alert was issued for parts of Ventura, Los Angeles and Orange County until Wednesday morning. The intense rainfall resulted in severe flooding in the San Fernando Valley, prompting the closure of Sepulveda Basin to all pedestrian and vehicular traffic. Officials have warned residents to stay away from not only the basin, but all floodwaters in general. Please, if you encounter a roadway that is flooded, please do as the individual is doing behind me and turn around and don't drown. This could become a very dangerous situation should that driver have chosen to drive through this flooded roadway. Stay away from the creeks. Uh, they are absolutely dangerous. Uh, it is swiftly flowing water. 
Uh, and what we don't want to have to do is um, have uh, somebody get injured uh, or worse, um, die because they fall into a fast-moving creek. An evacuation warning has been issued for the Topanga Canyon area due to possible mud and debris flow along Santa Maria Road until 9 a.m. Wednesday. High surf advisory extended until Tuesday for west and southwest facing beaches, predicting waves reaching 10 to 15 feet. Dry weather with warming temperatures is expected to return Thursday and Friday before a possible chance of light rain next week. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Coming up, a closer look at fundraising numbers from the two leading presidential candidates. Our guest says former President Trump is lagging behind President Biden in donations, while Republican mega donors continue bankrolling Nikki Haley. That and more after the break here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. The Supreme Court declined to rule on a so-called holistic admissions policy at Virginia's Thomas Jefferson High School, one of the nation's most prestigious public schools. This means the school can continue to favor applicants who are economically disadvantaged, and academic performance is not the main factor in admissions. The Supreme Court also rejected appeals from seven Trump-allied attorneys, including Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell. The group faces legal sanctions in Michigan for filing lawsuits that challenge the results of the 2020 presidential election. The U.S. vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. The resolution, drafted by Algeria, doesn't call for the release of hostages. At the same time, the UN World Food Program said it had paused food deliveries to northern Gaza for safety reasons. The Biden administration will announce major sanctions targeting Russia later this week. That's over the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny and the war in Ukraine. President Biden headed to California for several fundraising events, and GOP candidate Nikki Haley said she will stay in the race after the South Carolina primary on Saturday. Biden's campaign released its latest fundraising numbers, $42 million in January alone. How does this compare to Trump's fundraising record? Joining us now is Dan McMillan, founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America. Dan McMillan, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. To begin, the Biden campaign has raised $42 million in January. He now has $130 million on hand. Now, Biden's campaign manager said this is driven by a powerhouse grassroots fundraising program, adding that it's an indisputable show of strength to start the election year. Now, Trump's campaign has not released their January numbers, but he did raise $19 million in the last three months of 2023. What do you make of all of this? Well, Trump's Total fundraising numbers are going to be anemic compared to Biden's as long as the big, the heavy Republican mega donors are still putting their chips on Haley. Uh, this is magical thinking. Why they actually believe that this is going to happen, that she can win, is beyond me. But in any case, once Haley concedes, then all these heavy Republican donors will fall into line behind Trump because they'd rather have him than a Democrat. I think it's ironic and amusing that uh, I think it's Julie Chavez Rodriguez was the one who said this is a great show of strength. Well, it's a show of strength from donors uh, and heavy donors. Now, they can talk about the fact that they've had three million small donors, 
that most 97% of all donations are donations of less than 200, but the fact is the bulk of the money is coming from big donors. And in general, Trump, I think, already um, is, has done better than Biden with small donors, and that reflects the dramatic enthusiasm gap between Trump and Biden. A lot of Republican voters are excited about, about President Trump. Very few Democrats are excited about Biden. They're terrified of Trump. Uh, but I don't see a whole lot of excitement in favor of Biden. Now, speaking of deep-pocketed donors for President Biden, for example, Anna Wintour is hosting a campaign for Biden in France. This is following Paris Fashion Week. Now, the tickets range from $500 to $10,000. What do you make of this fundraising event that's happening not in America? Well, the donors at that event will all be Americans because foreign nationals are barred by law from donating to our campaigns. The $10,000 ticket actually, as fundraisers go, is something of a bargain. Uh, there are fundraisers in recent years where the, the people coming there can donate not just to a candidate, but to a super PAC and to the political parties committee. There have been fundraisers where the, the ticket uh, is $600,000 you donate. I don't know how often that's happened, but it's possible. But these heavy donors like Wintour or, or people who bundle donations from a lot of other people, gather them. Uh, as well as sort of billionaire mega donors, these people have extraordinary power in our political system to the point now where it's sort of headline news whenever this or that mega donor decides to, I'm supporting him or I'm supporting her and so on and so forth. And they never stop to ask, well, is this really right that these mega donors should have so much power? The thing is when, you know, when Anna Winter calls the White House you can bet that Joe Biden's going to take her call, but who's going to take our call? Who's going to speak for the voters? Who's calling the White House to speak for the voters? Because the thing is, the federal election campaigns have gotten so expensive in this country that, you know, the folks in Washington can't really afford to listen to us anymore. They're too busy raising money from the heavy donors and then taking care of the heavy donors. And we, the people, we're a nuisance. They still need our vote to get into office. But we're just a necessary evil, and they're completely out of touch with us. Speaking of the small donors, to one of your earlier points, Fox News and The New York Times is, are both reporting that Trump is leading Biden in terms of those small donors, especially in all battleground states. Now, yes. how do you see that playing out in terms of voter turnout when it does come to election time? I, I think, Tiffany, that, that that shows a dramatic, it shows just much greater enthusiasm. We, I think that Trump can count on his base turning out robustly and enthusiastically. Uh, I don't see that Biden can count on the same. Now, this does come as Trump is facing a slew of legal challenges that are quite costly. He's ordered to pay half a billion dollars in New York. Now, following the verdict last week, supporters have launched a GoFundMe that has raised over $600,000 in four days. What do you make of that? I think that you know, all of his indictments, we found last year that his indictments strength helped him politically, at least with part of his base. And I think the reason that they do is that, that President Trump, from the very beginning since 2016, has positioned himself as an outsider running against the system. Uh, in 2016, he said he's going to drain the swamp. He's promising systemic reform. Uh, when he got to D.C., the swamp did not, in fact, get drained. But even to this day, I think he sees himself 
presents himself is seen by his supporters as as an outsider, as a candidate against the system. And given the way that Republican mega donors have lined up behind Haley and DeSantis, that reinforces that narrative. And the indictments also reinforce that narrative. You know, the powers that be want to stop him at all costs. Um, and so that's the way I think that's the best way to understand that phenomenon, I think. Dan McMillan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Tiffany. With the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We'll have a lot prepared for you, including special guests on the ground coverage and the data hub. Join Steve Lance and myself on The Nation Decides 2024 live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern. A major crackdown on the notorious Lockbit ransomware gang as FBI and international law enforcement agencies arrest key members and seize their assets. I am very proud to be here today to announce these coordinated law enforcement actions, including the disruption of the Lockbit ransomware variant and charges against two Russian nationals for using Lockbit to attack victims throughout the United States. According to a message posted on the hacker's website, Lockbit's operations have been disrupted as a result of international law enforcement action. Two of the group's members were arrested and 200 cryptocurrency accounts were seized. Lockbit is responsible for extorting over $120 million from more than 2,000 victims globally. The group has targeted governments, educational institutions and essential emergency services. The group has taken credit for a November hack attack that forced a New Jersey-based healthcare system to cancel some patient appointments. Lockbit also said it's behind ransomware attacks in Fulton County, Georgia, that disrupted key county services for weeks, along with an attack on the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. Coming up, a worsening hospital crisis in rural America as hundreds of facilities are at risk of shutting down, leaving communities without care. Missing persons and murder cases left unsolved for years in Indian country. Native American tribes in California are calling on authorities to do more. And in soccer, where does Lionel Messi's $50 million salary rank worldwide? Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we come back. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Rural America's health system has been in crisis mode for 15 years. Hundreds of hospitals operating in the red. Now it's getting much worse. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. Hundreds of rural hospitals are at risk of shutting down. A new study from health advisory firm Chartist finds that over 400 are at risk of closing, and the percentage of rural hospitals operating in the red has jumped from 43 to 50 percent in the last 12 months. There has also been a dramatic drop in childbirth services at these hospitals. In around the past decade, over 260 stopped offering help to pregnant mothers, especially during the pandemic. Nearly half the hospitals in West Virginia, Florida, and Pennsylvania eliminated childbirth services. Florida, Nebraska, and Tennessee have the highest percentage of at-risk hospitals, with over 40% at risk of closing. 
States facing the greatest number of hospital closures are Nebraska in third place with 29, Kansas in second place with 38, and Texas in first place with 45. Hospitals say the COVID pandemic increased costs across the board. Now that government COVID funds are ending, many rural hospitals can't survive. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Native American tribes are calling on lawmakers and law enforcement to address the high rates of missing person cases and unsolved killings in Indian country. It's the second year they've gathered at California State Capitol to raise awareness. Tribal leaders, survivors, victims and advocates gathered in Sacramento last week for the second annual Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Summit. Tribal members spoke out about missing and murdered family members whose cases have gone unsolved or unaddressed for years. Many say authorities regularly fail to communicate the status of pending cases and law enforcement resources and social support programs are too sparse to offer much help. My sister Nicole Smith was murdered in my home on the Manchester Reservation in 2017 and I'm here to say her name and to raise awareness about her murder and it being unsolved. Um, my parents got pretty ill after my sister passed away, just being heartbroken, um, always living in fear because the murder was unsolved. They met with lawmakers, experts and law enforcement officials to discuss possible solutions. My aunt was shot on the on the Hoopa reservation in the early 80s. She was 18 years old and she died. And to this day, my family does not have a clear story on what happened to her. My grandson, Nick Patterson, the, our, missing, our missing family member, lived with me there at Lookout. And it, I was probably the last family member to see him alive. Um, like I said, he was 26 years old. It's been four years ago that uh, this, this happened and there's been absolutely no resolution of uh, this case whatsoever. The high rates of missing persons and unsolved slayings involving Indigenous people have captured the attention of policymakers at the highest levels. In 2019, former President Donald Trump signed an executive order establishing a task force. Congress followed in 2020 by passing two key pieces of legislation aimed at addressing the crisis. The Biden administration has been working to solve some of the systemic problems and jurisdictional challenges that have left the victims' families feeling invisible. Federal commission members heard hours from family members who have fought to keep their cases in the spotlight. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, some major news out of college football today regarding the 12-team playoff format. Now, instead of six automatic bids, there will be five. What was the reason for this? Well, it's really the demise of the Pac-12. I mean, they're about to become the Pac-2, essentially. Just Oregon State and Washington State are really left. In other words, they're not a power conference. Because the original thinking was to have the six highest-ranked conference champions receive automatic bids. That's because you had five power conferences whose winners would surely be among the top six highest-ranked conference champions. And then it guarantees at least one school outside of the Power Five gets into the playoffs. But since the Pac-12 is down to two schools, they're really not a power conference or even a conference really 
you need six schools for that. So now it will likely be the Power Four conferences and one other school getting the automatic bids. So otherwise, two teams outside the Power conferences would be guaranteed in. They don't really want that. But it also means there'll be seven at-large selections that a committee will have to decide on. So everyone still has a path. Now, what is the future of the PAC-2, as you called them? How, can, how long can they remain as just two schools? Not very long. I mean, there's, they're still trying to work everything out. The NCAA is giving them plenty of leeway. I mean, it's not like this is a startup conference that only had two schools. I'm sure the NCAA would not allow that. They just happen to be the only two out of 12 that didn't get an invite to another power conference. Now, if you remember, UCLA and USC sort of started this off by leaving for the Big Ten a year and a half ago. Those are the Pac-12's two most valuable properties as far as TV contracts go. Then when they couldn't get a back big contract, everyone else left about six months ago except for those two. But it looks like they're trying to keep the Pac-12 name and maybe invite some schools in, maybe from the Mountain West Conference. They do have a scheduling arrangement with the Mountain West Conference anyway for the next two years while they try to work something out. Well, shifting gears now to Major League Soccer, Inter-Miami's average ticket prices for tomorrow's opener are $185. That's compared to last season when it was about $27. Now, how much of this is attributed to Lionel Messi's presence? I'm going to say all of it. You know, I mean, he's one of the biggest sports attractions in the world. I mean, it's only been a little over a year ago since he led Argentina to the World Cup. Now, he joined Miami in mid-season last year, but they already dug themselves into such a hole that even he couldn't dig them themselves out, them out of it into a playoff spot. So they've gone from that to being the favorite, the betting favorites anyway, to win it all this year. Though there are plenty of um, people that cover the game that don't think his presence is enough to do that. In any case, it's enough to warrant a ticket price increase. I mean, he's also the highest paid player in the league by quite a wide margin in just salary alone. Plus, he gets an ownership stake in the club, so they've got to pay him somehow. On that note, where does Messi's salary rank as far as all soccer players worldwide goes? Number five at this point. You know, his straight salary is like 12 million a year, but he's also got a huge uh, signing bonus uh, and equity in the team. The total contract is believed to be worth around $150 million. So that's like 50 million a year. Christian Ronaldo is actually first. He gets more than $200 million this year alone with a club in Saudi Arabia. Second place is another Saudi Arabian club player at just over $200 million. So the Saudis are not only buying the best golf players, they're also buying the best soccer players, and they're paying quite a lot. I mean, for comparison's sake, the only other player in the world making over $100 million is Kylian Mbappe at 110 which is half of those two, pretty much. And then after them, it's Neymar at $55 million and Messi at 50. so it's quite a drop-off after that. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.